mediated conversation on SAFM. 26 minutes now to 9 the time. Good morning. The crisis in Sudan is now reaching a point where some aid agencies are warning it could turn into what they they call a full-scale ethnic civil war with entire communities that could now be at risk. In the last few days, there have been clashes between different groups. Some of them have been described, and I think this is difficult terminology, as sort of Arab groups or non-Arab groups, but formally... The fighting is between the main army of Sudan and the Rapid Support Forces. Another group called the Joint Protection Forces also seems to be involved in these clashes. The backdrop to the crisis in Sudan is complicated. It involves the former dictator, Omar al-Bashir, losing power and being overthrown. A military government took over. There were civilian protests against that government. And then this conflict broke out between these two main groups, the army and the Rapid Support Forces. So then how did this start? Is ethnicity a factor in all of this? What's happening to ordinary people in Sudan? This is your mediated conversation this morning. First, you'll hear from Professor Gilbert Kariagala about the population of Sudan and the causes of this conflict. He is currently director of the Center for the Study of the United States, but of course has focused on many areas. Then you'll hear about what's happening to ordinary people in Sudan. Donatella Rovera is the Senior Crisis Response Advisor for Amnesty International. And finally, the possible implications of all of this. Faith Mabira is a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. We start then with Professor Gilbert Kariagala. Professor Kariagala, good morning to you, sir, and thank you for your time. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Sudan has a long history, a history at one point of being ruled by the British and Egyptian governments. What is the ethnic makeup of Sudan, and is that important in understanding what is happening now? Uh, the ethnic make- makeup of Sudan is uh, very complex. I think the, the the key issue to understand is that uh, the dominant groups around Khartoum, which is the capital city, into the border with Egypt are essentially of Arab origin. But then if you go down towards the south uh, and the west, uh, I guess in the West, there are, there are also Arab groups, particularly in Darfur, where there was a big civil war uh, from 2003, and that war actually hasn't ended. And then the further you go down to the south, bordering now the current South Sudan, which used to belong to Sudan, are more African. And then on the eastern side, it's also much more uh, divided. There are Arab groups there, but there are also groups that are ethnically linked to Ethiopia and Eritrea. So it's a very complex uh, uh, ethnic mix. And then if you go up to the Port Sudan, which is more to the northwest, sorry, northeast, uh, then you have uh, a mixture of Arabs and Africans, but a lot of those are actually more Egyptian of the Arab, Arab origin, because it's very close to the to the Red Sea. Okay, so then the two main groups that we see in the fighting now, the National Army of Sudan and the Rapid Support Forces, do these group represent? Do these groups represent people of different ethnicities, or is it more complex than that? Uh, more complex, but I think the clear picture is that uh, the the Sudan, Sudan Army. Uh, which is uh, represented by uh, uh, Mr. Burhani, is actually the dominant Arab group, the one that I was talking about around Khartoum, the capital city, into Omdurman, 
the old city into the border with Egypt. Those are the real Arabs. But then the complication is the the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, came out of Darfur. And Darfur is also very, very, very divided between the Arabs there and the Africans. But the current leader who is battling Mr. Burhan is called Mohammed Amdani Daglo, and he's also of Arab origin, but from Darfur. Okay. <laughs> so that is the complication. It's Arab, but from Darfur. But the 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 Sudanese leader, the army, is uh, Mr. Burhan is also a, uh, Arab from Central Sudan, if we could put it that way. I suppose it's a bit like having um, someone with the surname Dlamini could be a Zulu Dlamini or a Swazi Dlamini. <laughs> Precisely. So the, the struggle is actually about power. It's not ethnicity is only coming in uh, for mobilization purposes. For instance, uh, Mr. Daglo from uh, Darfur is now even rallying non-Arabs from Darfur against the central government. So that's really the complicated element. But uh, down the road, the Darfurians, Africans and Arabs uh, don't see eye to eye, or rather that's why there was a civil war, uh, particularly a civil war that was stoked from the center by the Arab government. Yes. Okay, so that was going to be obviously the next question. What are they really fighting over? Is it about just control of resources and power, or is there any sort of, um, sort of ethnic history to this conflict? There is really no ethnic history to it. What it is is that... Uh, it's a delayed transition to democratic rule. When Mr. Bashir was overthrown in 2019, there was a compromise that civilians and the military were going to share power until election. That means until a democratic election. So part of the agreement was that the military was going to go back to the, to the barracks and the civilians were going to take over. But two years into that transition, from 2019 to 2021, the two military leaders who are now fighting each other overthrew the transitional government because they didn't want elections to be held ultimately. So they overthrew the civilian government, the civilian transitional government, and then they took power. So two years later, 2023 in April, on the eve of their handing over power to civilians, they start fighting against each other. So it's a purely struggle for power arising out of the fact that these two military leaders and their supporters really don't want to give up power. And partly because they have accumulated a lot of resources, a lot of wealth. Sudan is a very rich country. So they were anticipating that if the civilian government takes power, it was actually going to marginalize them from power. They are no longer going to be the big men who they have been since, uh, particularly since, uh, uh, because they worked under Mr. Bashir. Uh, they were very important. Mr. Mm -hmm. Daglo in uh, Darfur, he was actually fighting for the central government uh, in Darfur. And then, of course, Mr. Burhani has been uh, a key leader in the military in Sudan. So the fight is about power, about resources, but also it's about avoiding a civilian 
democratic system in Sudan. So now that we are in a full-fledged war, there's no possibility that there's going to be a democratic transition anymore. Um, is it going to, do you think, just remain between these two groups? Or could we see other groups entering the, flay, the fray or splintering off? And could it become a sort of, a bit like the DRC war was at one point, where you actually have lots of different groups against each other? Before the, the conflict arose, uh, in 20, let's say even 2021, the military taking over, you had other groups that had been contesting power over ethnic lines and uh, resource lines. Eastern, Eastern Sudan as groups there that had been contesting for power, just like the South Sudanese. In fact, during the years of the civil war in the Sudan, Eastern Sudan was also on uh, on uh, on a tinderbox because there are groups there that don't like the central government. But again, the full is also an important component of it. So now, when you have uh, a collapse of the center, it reignites all these grievances by these other groups who have always, in fact, contested for power in Sudan because Sudan is a huge country, and it has always been ruled from the center in Khartoum. There have not been any effort to give power to local communities because the Arab government in Sudan always was afraid of secessionist mm-hmm. movements like the Southern Sudan that led to the, to the independence of South Sudan in 2011. So the problem is that there are now many groups that are coming up because they know that those people are fighting for power in Khartoum this is the time for them to take advantage of the kind of vacuum that exists. And that is why you are going to see the proliferation of more groups contesting for power. And that's why it's a full-fledged civil war, actually. In April, people thought, you know, this thing is just going to end very soon. They will reach a compromise and then go back to the negotiating table and begin to talk about what we do from now. But it's been uh, almost going into more than, more than six months and this terrible situation happening in Sudan right now. Professor Gilbert Kadiagala, thank you very much indeed. Currently director at the Center for the Study of the United States, but as you can hear, an expert on Sudan. 16 minutes to nine, continuing your mediated conversation about the crisis there. Donatella Rovera is the Senior Crisis Response Advisor for Amnesty International. Donatella, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning. This fighting's had a huge impact on ordinary people. How many people have been displaced? What's happened to people who've had to leave their homes in Sudan? Um, well, it's difficult to know ex- the exact number of people who've been forced to uh, to leave their homes, but uh, we're talking about several million. So it is today the the biggest crisis in terms of displacement, in terms of the number of people who've been displaced over over a short period of time. Um, Obviously, there is millions who are displaced within the country uh, simply because it is difficult and impossible for many uh, to leave the country. So um, those for the population of the region of West Darfur, for example, um, it is possible for them to reach um, Chad. Uh, relatively easy, I'm saying relatively because it's it's not easy, but it's at least possible. 
Um, for others who live in areas that are further away from borders with another country, um, they have no other choice but to uh, at best move within the country, move to areas um, where there isn't fighting or where the fighting is, is less intense. Um, for people who are staying in Khartoum, are they able to get enough food? And is there food for people in Chad who've moved into Chad? Uh, with Khartoum, obviously, uh, insofar as we know, the, over, the, the majority of the population has left, uh, but there are still people and um, with difficulty, the basic uh, necessities um, still can be found. Um, with regard to Chad, the situation is dire because Chad is hosting uh, hundreds of thousands of Sudanese from before this bout of violence, before this war, so from you know previous years, from 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And the situation, um, as I saw it when I was there, um, it was, I'm not saying this lightly, but it was one of the worst situation that I had seen um, in my working life of over um, 20 years working in conflicts uh, across the across the world. Basically, people arriving from uh, Sudan uh, and finding literally not even not even plastic sheet with which to cover themselves uh, during the rainy season. So the situation for the refugee population um, in eastern Chad is extremely dire. Sure. Um, is the United Nations, are you able to provide any aid? And obviously there's there's so many other areas that you, you need to help people as well. Is aid getting through to people in Sudan? The United Nations and other um, organizations that work in the field of development and relief, obviously we at Amnesty International are not amongst them. We investigate war crimes and other abuses. Um, but so United Nations agencies and uh, uh, aid organizations are able to provide aid, especially for those who are um, displaced within areas of Sudan where there isn't any fighting, uh, as well as in, in neighboring countries. Uh, the reality, though, is that the um, humanitarian aid that is needed is just not, uh, the funding just isn't there. Um, the international community has not responded to these very, very serious crises. Um, in, in the manner that it should have. And therefore, the pledges for humanitarian aid are way below what is, uh, what is needed by the affected population. Donatella Rivera, thank you. The Senior Crisis Response Advisor for Amnesty International. In a moment, Faith Mabira from the Institute for Global Dialogue on the situation in Sudan, 11 minutes to nine. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Continue your mediated conversation this morning about the situation in Sudan. Faith Mabir is a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. Faith, good morning. Thanks for your time. Good morning, Stephen, and good morning to the listeners. 
Um, it, it does appear that this fighting is becoming entrenched. These two groups are not going to stop fighting easily. Is it possible for other countries to intervene here to try and stop this fighting? It would seem to be very difficult. Yes, so what what is in, increasingly um, coming to the fore is that we are likely to see establishment of areas of control by the two uh, military factions. Uh, essentially, this would mean that the country could possibly be split into uh, hard zones of uh, control. At the moment, we've seen the rapid support forces led by Hemeti taking control of at least three of the five state capitals in Darfur, which is its historic uh, power base. The uh, Sudanese armed forces led by Buhar um, at the moment seem to control largely um, some areas around uh, the capital of Khartoum and a lot of the agricultural and um, industrial productivity states, your White Nile, um, Blue State, Blue Nile State, um, etc. They also um, increasingly are looking to establish uh, a minimal presence in Port Sudan, making it in many ways the country's new de facto um, capital. So this is where it gets interesting because in the in the event that Port Sudan now emerges as the SAF power base and de facto capital, this would then prompt the rapid support forces to declare an alternative capital of their own. And then what we what we would have is um, reminiscent of the Libyan scenario. This idea where we have uh, the breakup of Sudan potentially into um, two rival government administrations. Um, and then that would obviously let, lead to a prolonging um, of the fighting and make it very difficult to resolve a conflict um, which was largely uh, informed by a political military dispute coupled with elements of geopolitics and contestations of power and control in a rentier state. I so mean, this is what we are likely to see. Yeah, That would be a terrible scenario where you have the sort of Libyan scenario. It basically means strong men are entrenched, fighting is entrenched, there's no development at all. You see the collapse of, a nation, of the nation state in a way in that area. Yes, and it's interesting because we see Sudan's positioning as a very vital link in an increasingly uh, fragile region, uh, region where it actually acts as a key nodal point, bringing together not only the violent geopolitics of the Red Sea region, but also of the Sahel states. So this is this is um, also important to bring up because Sudan is the third largest producer of gold after South Africa and the Sahelian states, and this informs the political economy uh, of the conflict. In fact, even with the establishment of Port Sudan, which is the only functioning um, sea adjacent uh, port in Sudan, we've seen that they, there's been continued um, export of its key exports, Gamma Arabic limited exports of livestock um, and also imports of oil into the region. So when we see dominance of control over such strategic assets by one military group, then you see the continued impetus for fighting just to establish not only territorial control, but um, continued dominance over the country's um, um, resources, particularly the gold trade, which has been also a key driver um, of the political contestations. We've seen, of course, uh, the coups in West Africa. Could some of those countries uh, fall prey to the kind of situation Sudan is in now? Different militia, different uh, military groups uh, fighting against each other, lines of control, that kind of th- areas of control, that kind of thing. Um, it's possible in the sense that 
I think a, a major determining factor in this case is the, the extent to which a state is able to not only established um, rule of law and control over the monopoly of violence. If it, in, in the case, as in Sudan, where we've seen a fragmented security sector, then that scenario that you're positing is very much um, um, likely, because that would mean that there is, um, uh, you have a, a situation where the a country is particularly awash with arms, you have a country where there's a breakdown in the rule of law, and yes, you, you're likely to see fragmentation um, and, and augmentation of various um, um, non-state uh, armed actors taking advantage of the security vacuum and engaging in uh, various uh, localized uh, um, sort of configurations across the various countries. But the Sudan case, I think, is interesting because um, the latest that we've seen is that the, they had, there was an attempt to sort of inject a bit of life into the Jeddah talks led by the US and Saudi Arabia, but they've not been able to um, established a ceasefire. What came out of it was just a loosely held um, sort of humanitarian pause to the fighting, but immediately a few days after that particular um, agreement, then we saw resumption of fighting. And fighting has been particularly vicious, as I said, in the epicenter, which is the Khartoum, Bari, Obduman, Tri-State Metropolitan Area. But also, um, as even uh, Prof. Katagala mentioned, and Donatella mentioned, there's been a spread into other areas. So this possibility of a, of a splintering into um, hardened areas of control is, is becoming an impending reality as the war fights, which of course would have implications for conflict resolution mm. uh, perspectives, but also the idea that we would see um, various actors now, the regionalization of the conflict with both local and regional actors taking advantage of that breakdown um, in, 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 in safety and security and rule of law. So this is likely to lead to a prolonging of the fighting. And Faith, very quickly, if you can, the other conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, if they weren't happening, would the rest of the world be putting more resources into trying to resolve what's happening in Sudan? I think in this case, the short answer would be money follows where the, the power and the politics are. So if the interest, as we've seen um, over the past couple of weeks, that the international gaze has been largely fixed on the war in Gaza. And this is particularly because of the high stakes nature, the kind of narratives that seem to be attending that particular uh, um, war. And interestingly, we've seen almost lessened international attention on the war in Ukraine. So it's also a dominance of um, not only attention, but a redirection of key political, diplomatic and military um, were whistled by powerful actors in the international order. They're, they're sort of the ones who dictate where a lot of these resources are, are directed mm. because they, they obviously pursue a lot of their own agendas and interests. So it's a question of which one takes paramount importance through the prison and the purview of the very powerful actors in the system. Faith Mabira, thank you. Senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue. Really appreciate the time. Donatella Rivera is the Amnesty International Senior Crisis Response Advisor. And starting us off today, Professor Gilbert Kadiagala, Director at the Center for the Study of the United States.